Would you please open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we'll be looking at the first three verses of this letter this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of, G- of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you this morning submitting ourselves to your word. Your inerrant, inspired word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And we pray that you would open and enlighten our hearts that we might clearly and rightly understand. Father, we pray that through your word, by your spirit, because of your son, you would guide us into all truth, that you would transform us to be pleasing to you, that we would be filled with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ, fully pleasing to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Has there ever been a perfect church? In the history of redemption, has there ever been a group of people who are in total or even substantial agreement with one another, not only with one another, but with one another in Scripture? The short answer, no. Long answer, um, no. Why? If God has spoken finally, sufficiently, and without, without error in His Word, why are there problems in any church of the Lord Jesus Christ? There is an apocryphal that is probably made up story of a guy named G.K. Chesterton, who was like the Catholic C.S. Lewis, writing a letter to the editor of a newspaper in response to the story, um, struggling to answer the question, what is wrong with the world? Um, Why is it such a troubled place? And Chesterton is said to have written, Dear Sirs, I am, signed G.K. Chesterton. The story makes a point, and it gives a simple answer to the question, why are there no perfect churches? The reason for the problems seen in the church from the beginning of the church has an answer, and unfortunately, it is not G.K. Chesterton, at least not anymore. He died a long time ago. The problem with the church is not that the Bible is not sufficient or that it is too hard to understand. The problem is with us. Sinners who, though fully justified before God through Christ by faith, nonetheless must fight sin to their dying breath. This this, this disunity in the church is not a new problem. In the mid-1600s, a Puritan preacher named Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book called The Causes, Evils, and Cures of Heart and Church Divisions. And just a quick look at the table of contents shows us much. He talks about the causes of division in the church, beginning with direct sins that divide, like pride and envy and self-love and rigidness and rashness and jealousy, along with practices that divide, such as gossip and slander and favoritism and revenge and meddling. Burroughs explains how these sins and practices hinder the church in many ways. From the practical, like eating up time better used for something else, to disrupting the communion of brothers and sisters in Christ and the use of, one another's, of, of each one's gifts, 
And these sins can lead to even more sin, especially as they dishonor Christ and keep others from God's ways. But in God's great graciousness, he has given us the cure, not only to heal divisions outwardly, superficially, but the cure to heal us deep down in our souls. The healing, this healing is not something that happens naturally, as though we can, um, through sheer effort and willpower, um, fix it. But only in, by, and through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, applied to ourselves and to others, will this be healed. To see one another as... in to see one another in our churches as forgiven sinners by faith in Christ through his death on the cross. That is the only way any divisions will be healed. To get to the nub of Burroughs' argument, Christ told us to cut off our own hand if it causes us to sin. But if our brother sins against us, we are first to go alone and then with others and then take it to the church. There is never a command to cut him off and throw him away. I'll give you one more quote from Burroughs. If men have any indulgence, let it be toward their brethren. And if they have any severity, let them exercise it toward themselves. How often do we get this exactly backwards? I rationalize my own actions all the time. That might have come off as rude, but I didn't mean it that way, and so they shouldn't take it that way. I should get the benefit of the doubt, right? But as soon as someone else does something or says something, all too often I assume the worst even to those closest to me, like my long-suffering wife and kids. To be clear, that is sin, a sin that must be repented of. 1 John 4, verse 20 says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. This is serious business. This is the major reason Paul wrote this letter to the church in Corinth. It was a heavily populated, primarily with Romans, but also with people from all over the known world. The city was as large and diverse as an ancient city could get, bringing with it all of the religious pluralism and immorality that comes with a city of that size. In fact, Corinth was so corrupt and wicked that to call someone a Corinthian or to say that they had Corinthianized, became a slur of especially bad behavior. Probably something like what we associate with what goes on in Las Vegas. It was in this time and culture that Paul preached the gospel in Corinth, and by the power of God's word, a church was formed. Paul stayed there and taught for about a year and a half before moving on to Ephesus. Soon after he left, he received word that the church was not behaving as they should. So he wrote them a letter of correction, a letter we don't have, And apparently, whatever he told them, it didn't stick. So he wrote a longer, more substantial letter to this wayward church, and that's what we have in 1 Corinthians. There were many, many problems in the young church that Paul needed to address, and address them he did. But instead of only scolding them, he applied the gospel gospel to what they were doing and not doing. Like so many Christians today, the Corinthian believers had a really hard time not mimicking the unbelieving and corrupt society around them. Instead of being a shining city on a hill, they just barely stayed above or ahead of the surrounding culture morally. Instead of firmly planting their feet in the Word of God, they drifted in the direction of the world. This is all too common, both for the individual Christian and for churches. Thea Carson has said, People do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to Scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. We drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. 
we drift toward disobedience and call it freedom. We drift toward superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch towards prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves we have been liberated. This is what has happened in the church of Corinth. They drifted into worldliness in the worst sense of that word. They wanted to be citizens of both God's kingdom and the world's. They wanted the blessings of a new life and the sinful pleasures of the world. They refused to de-Corinthianize. Paul had expected them to mature more in his absence than they they did, especially after his first letter. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tackles a whole host of issues, always pointing to the finished work of Jesus and to, to the gospel as the solution. He explains and applies the gospel in ways that are not only relevant and practical to the Corinthian church then, but for us now. Because the gospel is always relevant. It is always on the cutting edge. The things the Corinthians dealt with have a way of creeping in and popping up in nearly every age and region of the world. And Paul holds out the gospel and the principles and implications of the gospel as a solution to every problem we will face. Really? One solution for every problem? Yes. The gospel is the solution every time because it is God's solution. There are many things that Paul addresses, but if we had to choose one as the main issue of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, it is that of division and disunity in the church and how this hinders the advancement of the gospel. Paul urges unity, not based on superficial things like the color of skin or common interests or ages or jobs or anything else, but on Christ, unity in Christ. So let's look together to verse 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. The apostle Paul begins this letter to the saints, the Christians in Corinth, the way he begins most of his letters. He identifies himself as the author along with those who are with him, in this case, Sosthenes. He clarifies who this letter is directed to, in this case, the church of God in Corinth. This is followed by a standard greeting of grace and peace to you from God our Father. If you flip to the beginnings of each of Paul's letters, you will find that they all look very much the same way. And what follows is also typical, his thankfulness for the evidences of grace that can be seen in the church. From the beginning, Paul here makes clear not only who is writing, but on what authority he is writing this letter of strong correction with. Paul is an apostle of Christ Jesus. This is a fact, but Paul did not become an apostle of Christ Jesus on his own. He, he wasn't sent by a church. He didn't wake, one, wake up one morning and decide, today I will become a specifically sent messenger of the crucified and resurrected carpenter of Nazareth. No, at the beginning of Acts 9, we see Paul, a Jesus-hating, zealous, violent Pharisee, bent on stamping out Christianity in its cradle. When Jesus literally knocks Saul off his high horse and calls him to himself. To be an apostle was to be sent by Jesus Christ himself. To be an apostle means that the person saw the risen Jesus with their very own eyeballs. It was to be sent by Jesus, commissioned by him directly and in person. I labor this point because apostolic authority is a big deal. It carries weight for us even now. 
And by the will of God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they wrote the New Testament. With just as much surety and authority as Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. These men did not make up their own authority. It was given to them by God. And when they died, the the church office of apostle went with them. The things they wrote and that we have in our Bible are exactly what we are meant to have. We have got all that we needed and nothing we didn't. Every word is as binding as if God spoke it directly. Because just as Peter said in 2 Peter 1, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So in the Corinthian church, Paul's authority was being questioned. So he sets the record straight, making clear that he is indeed an apostle. This is not self-aggrandizement, but pushing folks to look to Christ. And while there is no one today called to be an apostle of Christ, we are all called to be disciples of Christ. A disciple is one called to follow Jesus. And as we follow, we are called to draw others along with us by the proclamation of the gospel. Another thing to notice here, in, even in this first verse, even though Paul was an apostle, he was not alone. Paul wasn't some lone wolf for Christ. He was, work, he was working with other folks. He planted the church in Corinth with Aquila and Priscilla. And in Ephesus, he was working with at least Sosthenes and likely more. This shows us that the Christian life is not a solo affair. When we are called to Christ, we are called to be a community of believers as well. To a church in two senses. To the global church and to a specific local church, as we'll see in verse 2. Verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. There were many societies and guilds and associations and religious cults in Corinth. Many of them took the name of ecclesia or gathering. This was a common term for uh, assembly. But more significantly, this is what the people of God were called in the Old Testament. The ecclesia means church or assembly. So when Paul says, to the church of God in Corinth, he is not writing to a building. He didn't address his letter to the first Corinth church on the corner of Pythagoras Street and Aristotle Boulevard. Paul is saying to this outpost of the church in Corinth, this is a local church with folks who understood themselves to be members of this particular local church. This was not a group of just anyone who happened by, but those who intentionally gathered regularly to hear the word of God preached and to take the Lord's Supper together. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. These few few words are astounding, given the people that Paul was writing to. Remember, he was writing this letter to correct a whole slew of problems. There were folks who were divided over teachers, divided over practices in the church, suing one another, putting up with sexual immorality of a kind that even the Corinthians, the kings of sin and indulgence, wouldn't put up with. And Paul calls these folks sanctified. This is the same word that was used for the articles set aside for the holy use in the temple of God. To those sanctified, those already made 
fully. This is a past tense verb, a work already accomplished. These folks are sanctified. Say what now? How in the world can these people, the ones that Paul had to write a second letter to because they didn't get it the first time, how can these folks be holy? The answer is found at the end of the phrase, in Christ Jesus. The people who make up the church in Corinth are sanctified, made holy only in Christ. Paul is decidedly not saying that the people are holy in themselves. They are not. No one is. What Paul here is doing is applying the already and not yetness of the kingdom of God to, uh, to Christians, the kingdom of Christ to Christians. The point is not the present perfection of Christians, but their position in Christ Jesus. The Corinthian church and Christians today are made holy in Christ first, and then from there we are called to live holy lives. No one is made holy by living holy lives. To any extent to which we are holy is because in Christ we are already holy and have the counsel and power of His Holy Spirit. One writer has said, The church is a school for sinners, not a museum for saints. That is no excuse to stay in our sin, given our position in Christ. We must look to the next part of the verse, called to be saints. Paul reminds the Corinthians You are made holy in Christ and called to be holy in Him, not in yourselves, not in your own effort. Any holiness that is in you is a foreign holiness. It comes from outside you, through Christ, by the Holy Spirit. By Jesus' own sacrificial work on the cross, He sanctifies those who believe in Him. By that I mean He sets them apart for Himself. He cleanses them. He perfects them. God alone in Christ Jesus, makes his, by His Holy Spirit, provides holiness. Man's part is to, by faith in Jesus, receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified, the saints. The saints are not in a Catholic sense, but in a Christian sense. All the saved are saints. Every believer has the right and even a duty to call himself a saint. Now our practice must match our position. This holiness is not just an outward expression, It is not a set of rituals, not a matter of not doing certain things. This kind of holiness can only lead to a false holiness, a kind of hypocrisy. As Jesus called the Pharisees, a whitewashed tomb, looking good on the outside while the inside is dead. The kind of holiness Christians are called to is both a positive and a negative holiness. A not doing of things God does not approve of but also a purposeful doing of things that he does. It does no good to walk around refraining from doing all manner of things if you never do the things you are supposed to do. It's like the kid who never put on his new pair of rollerblades because he didn't want to get them dirty, and then when he went to put them on, they were too small. On one hand, the the holiness we are called to means a separation from all manner of sins, such as sexual impurity, false worship, lying and cheating. And then on the other hand, we are called to love one another and a love of the Lord Jesus. Paul here is shouting a reminder to these Christians in Corinth. Remember who and whose you are. It is the same for us. Every Christian must remember the difference between his position and practice, his standing and his state. God sees us as righteous 
because he sees us in his righteous son who has taken our place. And because he has planted in us a new righteous nature. Without keeping this important and encouraging truth in mind, it is impossible to understand 1 Corinthians or any other part of the New Testament clearly. As John MacArthur says, presidents do not always act presidentially. Diplomats do not always act diplomatically. Kings do not always act kingly. But they are still presidents, diplomats, and kings. Christians do not always act like Christians, but they are still Christians. To the church of God in Corinth, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be saints, to be holy, not alone, but together with all those who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not only a Corinthian problem. It is today even more of a personal issue than a church-at-large issue. In our modern, Western, especially American culture, we are individualists. We do things on our own. We come from ancestors who left all they knew and loved to come to a new land and stake their claim. There are many, many reasons for folks to leave Europe and other continents to come here, from religious freedom to economic issues to legal troubles. We come from a people who left. There is something to that. We are tough and hardworking and able to get by on less. We want to do for ourselves and not rely or impose on others. And in many ways, that is a great strength. But individuality is not what we are called to as Christians. Listen carefully here. From baptism to church membership, it is primarily about what God has done, not what you have done. It is about the will of God, not the will of man. That doesn't mean that we become a mindless mob of brainwashed people. It means that we as Christians are called to Christ together. The Christian life is much more like a bus ride with fellow Christians than a motorcycle rally. We are all on the same bus driven by Christ through his word. Not all just going in the same general direction, giving one another the motorcycle wave as we pass one another on Sunday mornings. We are all united with Christ by grace through faith, and we are also united with all other believers in Christ. Steady growth in love and goodness and Christ-likeness occurs mainly within a community. Later, Only later, down the line, does it relate to a Christian as a lone individual. Paul emphatically rejects the notion that the local church in Corinth may view itself as self-sufficient in isolation from other Christian communities. They belong to the wider Christian church. The readers are called to be holy together with all those who call upon on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ in every place, in every place, both their Lord and ours. We are called together. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a little phrase that is so common in Paul's letters. This is Paul taking a, a common secular way of opening, opening letters with greetings and flipping it on its head and making it about God. Grace and peace is a greeting, but it's also a reminder. It refers to the redemption purchased by Christ. As can be seen throughout the letter, grace means God's unmerited favor. That which we do not in any way, under any circumstances, deserve. Peace is not just the absence of conflict, but echoes the Old Testament concept of shalom, where a person's life with God and with everything else is in perfect ordered harmony. 
both physically and spiritually, all is well. The world does not and cannot give that kind of peace. Have we not seen that this week? The world cannot have or give true, mind-settling, soul-easing peace. It is not possible. This greeting, grace and peace, is, an appro- is appropriate only from one believer to another believer because it speaks of blessings that only they possess. Because the ultimate source and mediating channel of this grace and peace is from God through Christ by the Spirit. What do we do with all this? What does all this mean? If we are to summarize this message, the, the point of these verses at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, it would be this, to be in practice what we are in fact. That is to act as what we are, the people of the holy people of God, together. To call upon the the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is to invoke His aid as Christ, the Messiah predicted by the prophets as our almighty and sovereign possessor and ruler. It is in that sense that Jesus is Lord. He is our King. And we must not only accept this, but submit to it fully and finally. In our submission to Christ, we are unified with all Christians everywhere. This unity is not a superficial unity, not a unity in name alone, but a unity in truth. There are many things that true Christians disagree about, from how church membership looks to the way we interpret certain passages about prophecy or the end times. Our unity as Christians is because all Christians regard, regard God as their Father and Christ as their Lord. His person they love, His voice they obey, and His protection they trust. The result is of this unity is a unity in the gospel. And this is essential. The gospel is the message that mankind is born in sin, that we are all through Adam first and then in ourselves fallen and unable to please God, that we are rebels against God's just and holy rule from the time of our birth. And through this rebellion have earned God's just and holy wrath and deserve to be punished in hell for eternity. But in His great love, God sent His Son, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man, who lived a perfect life, fulfilling the law where we could not. And on the cross, He died the death that was ours. He took upon Himself the just wrath of God and the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn to Him and trust Him. And on the third day, He rose again from the the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us has been exhausted. He now calls for us to repent of our sins and trust in Christ alone for our forgiveness. The only right response for this good news is repentance and faith. That is turning from our sin and to Christ in faith. Believing that Jesus is indeed who he says he is and did what he said he would do. This is the unity that all Christians have across all time. This is the essential. The rest is of second and third importance. This is not to say unimportant, but not as important as the gospel. How are we doing at this? How are we doing at living holy lives together? Not only as individuals, but as a community. How are we doing at striving together for godliness? How are we doing at discipleship? And I don't mean official discipleship groups. I mean the intentional relationships that you have with other members of this local church. Mature Christians, are you discipling less mature Christians? 
Are you inviting them into your life? And I don't mean in Sunday school. I mean during the week, are you discipling someone? If you aren't, why not? What is in the way of following Jesus together? What has become more important? Because let me tell you, there's nothing more important than your eternal soul. No job or school function, no TV show or ball game is more important than discipleship. Busyness is just not a good excuse. If you are unsure of how to disciple someone, begin with this. Read the Bible yourself and read it with someone else. May I suggest to start in the Gospel of John. Walk through the text, talk about it, and pray about it. If you are still unsure, find a mature Christian and ask them to disciple you. It doesn't have to be a big production. We, all, we have all we need in the Bible. We hold it in our hand in the Spirit of God who dwells in us and in all who believe. How are we doing in unity in the essentials? What are disagreements over? Because unless the gospel is at stake, it probably isn't as big a deal as you think. Again, this is not to say that it's unimportant, but it's not ultimate. Let us strive for holiness together, unified in the gospel for the glory of God, because in the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what we are called to. There has never been a better time to be this kind of witness in the world, especially in America where there's no certainty about anything but uncertainty. To, call to, be a, to be called to be, a saint, to be a saint is to be made holy in Christ. And if we are called to be holy, we are in fact, in the deepest sense, made holy in Christ, then we must be holy. We must be set apart, not in a standoffish sense. We are to live, to act, to conduct ourselves differently than the world. We are to find our worth, our hope, our confidence outside ourselves, outside our job, outside our politics, outside our families, outside everything and everyone but Christ alone. He is our hope. He is our strength. He is our righteousness. He is our life. He is our king, no matter what our circumstances. No matter how afraid we are of what is coming at the national level or how hopeful we are at the national level, we as those whose identity is in Christ, those who by grace alone, through faith alone, are united to Christ, we are secure in Him. Our supreme allegiance is to Him. Even this week, when people of all political persuasions are in an uproar over one thing or another about the election, to be clear, election tampering is not a good thing. We should pray that the truth comes out and justice is truly done. But even if justice is not done, or if it is done and the results are not what we hope for, we don't have to despair. In fact, we must not despair. For those in Christ, for those called out by Him together to be the church, we, along with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, must trust in Him. We must actually trust that God is sovereign. We must actually trust that even when things don't make sense, He is good. We must trust that as we sang earlier that this is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the world, that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. And what better way to do this, to rejoice that our Lord Jesus is king than to, as a church, come to the table and eat the meal that our Lord Jesus gave us, remembering that this is a victory supper. 
The Lord's Supper is a solemn, joyful celebration. In the Lord's Supper, we remember the suffering and death of the innocent Son of God, and we confess that it was our sin that made it necessary. In the Lord's Supper, we rejoice that God made a way for us to be saved, and we proclaim with confidence that Christ is alive and will come again. In these ways, we express in turn both joy and sorrow, grief and triumph. There's a sense in, in which this one little meal, we rehearse the whole gospel with all its shame and glory. In obedience and faith, we take the bread and the cup. In obedience and faith, we take them in the hope that our Lord will come quickly. But in the meantime, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, and we do this in unity. We do this in obedience. We do this in faith. We do this in hope. We do this examining ourselves, and we do this in joy. I will pray, and then um, with the number we have this morning, we'll form one line, um, and, and Mel will come up, and um, I, he will hold one or the other, and I will hold the other. Um, and then once everyone has been served, we'll take the supper together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the unity you have given us with Christ as individuals and the unity in Christ we have as believers. We pray for substantial others-serving holy unity among the believers in this church. We pray that we would be gracious and forgiving with one another. We pray for a unity in the gospel here that goes beyond all the differences we can see in one another. We pray for unity in the gospel with true gospel preaching churches in our area. We pray that we can be unified in the matter of first importance. That we, along with true gospel preaching churches here across the country and the world, would strive to make disciples of all nations. As we prepare to come to the table to take the Lord's Supper now, we remember that it was your great mercy, Father, to give us your people, your Son. It was from all eternity that you planned and ordered and willed and appointed and prepared the great salvation of the gospel. Remind us often that it is only by your strength and your grace that we are here. We pray that you would strengthen us now in Christ, that you would cause us to walk in his name from now until you bring us home. We pray that we would come to the table in a worthy manner. We pray that we would come with repentant hearts. We pray that we would come joyfully in faith, sincerity, and truth. We pray for our good and your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.